sorry. <laughs> right. I'll save that to later. Ready? Yeah. Go. Hello and welcome to episode 61. 61. Of the world famous tetrapod zoology prod podcasts. I am I'm Richard T. Hoagland. <laughs> I live in a giant dome on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the Minnesota Iceman. Mm. And in this episode, we have some exciting news from the world of uh, Mesozoic archosaurs and amphibian-y type things, as they're technically known. And Bunch of news. what we scientists call amphibian type things, yes. Yep. And some exciting adventures of our own makings, and a crap ton of more <laughs> crash, crash the question. So I'm not going to drink this time because no, <laughs> didn't a, go. That was a mistake. Oh, what the hell! All right. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. Just in case we sound a little tired, this is because we're recording this episode directly after the last one. <laughs> we've got to stack them up because we don't get to record them very often so we just have to record several in a row and of course they're so long it means we're talking for hours and hours and hours and hours because mm, right. we have to do a lot of preparation preparation yeah, lots yeah. of preparation and then there's a post show yeah. critique where we discuss how we can improve yeah. ourselves <laughs> yeah <laughs> what how can we make it better for our listeners next time we say after every episode yeah. um <laughs> <laughs> you, you believe that? Um, be less bad and boring. <laughs> let's be less boring. All right. That's what. That's what. Uh, right. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open a uh, stopwatch. Stopwatch. Google it. <gasps> and oh, sorry. And two minutes rule for news from the world of news. Go. Go. Tyrannosaur fuzz okay. paper by a bunch of authors. Right. So tell me about this because I haven't read it. Uh, it's relevant it, is, to my interests, but I don't really know anything about okay. it. Um, so uh, Phil Bell and a long list of authors, including Pete Larson, Philip Curry and Robert Backer, um, they, they, they finally described a bunch of um, skin uh, impressions from, or bits of fossilized skin, whatever, from Tyrannosaurus rex, from Albertosaurus, Daspletosaurus, Gorgosaurus, and Tarbosaurus, and they say that these bits of skin uh, do demonstrate the presence of s- scaly integument across the better part of the uh, epidermis of those taxa. And uh, some of these bits of skin are – we're going to keep this really brief because there's so much that's been said about this stuff already. It's not true that the bits of skin are like the size of like stamps. I mean a lot of them aren't postage stamps. A lot of them aren't very big. If you look at the scale bars, uh, some of them are only a few centimeters across. They seem to come from like the side of the neck, the hip region, um, the side of the tail. 
Uh, and their argument is they use some statistics uh, to map the distribution of scaly integument on tyrannosauroids. They say that it's about 97% likely that tyrannosaurids, that one specific clade of tyrannosauroids, does indeed have scaly skin covering probably virtually the whole of the body, if not the whole of the body. Um, and therefore, given the, the, the filamentous condition known to be present in earlier tyrannosauroids, like Dillong and the large Uteranus, they say it's most likely that um, there was this transition to scaly skin in Tyrannosaurids. And they do throw in a few um, caveats. They do say that if there was... I'm over two minutes. Yeah. Two minutes, seven seconds. I've got to stop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> they do say that... Okay, they do say that if there was a filamentous integument, if there were filaments or feathers of any kind, then it must only have been restricted to the dorsal surface, which to me is kind of a major caveat because that's where people think it might be. When you see these semi-hypothetical reconstructions of filamentous tyrannosaurids, remember we're not talking about all tyrannosaurs here, we're specifically talking about tyrannosaurids, um, there's this kind of idea that there might be kind of like a dorsal neck and cape on the back kind of thing mm. and this isn't inconsistent with that but i can't say i'm offended either way whatever the truth is but um i, I do think that some reconstructions i've been involved in like the the dinosaurs in the wild tyrannosaurs i think they probably have too much filamentous integument in view of this uh, finding yep. um should probably be reduced but on the other hand we're still talking about tiny sample sizes. We're still talking about like one, sometimes as many as two specimens from each species. And we are also talking about um, a, a possible taphonomic bias. There might be some sediments where even if filaments are present, uh, you just don't have them preserved. Um, and all these ideas about scaly integument and filamentous integument not existing in the same space it's they're not you literally can't have a scale and a feather or a filament you you can't have them literally going from the same space obviously but you can still have filaments growing like you know how in birds there are tracts and the feathers feathers from specific tracts cover otherwise naked areas of skin yeah. you could still have filaments growing from like an area dorsal to a scaly area and still overhanging part of the scaly skin um and still not get the filaments preserved due to you know the way taphonomy works or the way the body rotted or yeah. whatever so um still interesting Probably too many feathers on these big tyrannosaurs and a lot of pictures. Oh, and one thing one thing that should be mentioned is um, off the back of this, a lot of people have said that, well, it kind of makes sense that big tyrannosaurids in subtropical or tropical environments wouldn't have wanted filaments or feathers because they wouldn't want to be insulated. They would want to lose their heat, right? Well, two things on that. First of all, some of the big tyrannosaurids don't come from subtropical or tropical environments. They actually come from temperate or even cool temperate environments. Um, even places like, um, well, like northern Laramidia, I think like you're talking about some of these animals being from environments where average temperature was uh, like, you know, 15 to 20 degrees C, not like 30 degrees C. They're not always in super hot places. And also, um, having a filamentous integument 
this is a big deal. It's been published. Uh, um, it's been demonstrated in living mammals. Having a filamentous stuff on you helps you lose heat, not retain heat. So one of the reasons it's thought that elephants retain fur, retain hair. It, okay, it's sparse hair in adults, obviously, particularly in Asian elephants where the babies are still quite hairy. But um, the hair helps them lose heat not retain heat so you can't say that being big and being in a subtropical or warm temperate or tropical environment is inconsistent with i'm losing my train of thought here but um i, I think does that make sense what i said sure. yep sure. <laughs> yeah and you're you. well over two minutes now oh god you're like it i don't know six nearly minutes 10 or something no it's, it's still running six minutes right reset okay, okay. but yeah I'm not unhappy if it if how annoying the reality is the way it is. If I'm not, I'm not too upset if it turns out that big tyrannosaurids are scaly skinned, but I still think, and I've heard other people say the same thing. There's still this possibility that they uh, they could have had filamentous and take them in in a few places. Yeah, I'm uh, just annoyed that I'm going to have to go change a bunch of paintings probably. Well, but Again. are you? Yeah, but are you? Yeah, that's, I think that's I, there's the... too much on some of them. Definitely. This is the um, this is the Dinosaurs in the Wild, yeah. Tyrannosaurid, yeah. which obviously conforms to, you know, my advice. Um, we'll talk about dinosaurs in the wild a bit more in a minute, but, I mean, can you see? This is this is all meant to be filamentous integument all yeah. over the neck. Yeah, well done, Don Prothero. Don said, where are the feathers in giant caps? And I was like, Don, there's like, can you see? This is filamentous integument over the dorsal surface. But, uh, yeah. So you're probably safe with that. Um, well, some of the skin patches seem to be the side of the neck uh, and also uh, from somewhere like on the side of the thigh or the side of the hips, and they seem to show scaly skin in those areas. But again, like I said, you know, sample size of one or two specimens, does it mean that they're all like that throughout the whole of the year, throughout the whole of their lifetime, uh, in all populations? I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to make excuses. And how I wish – I've said this before st- – don't use the term feather Nazi. Don't use the term Nazi in connection with anything. Christ, what is the matter with people? They love carving themselves up into these little sects and clubs. Jesus. Okay. Um, Razanon Drongobi. Uh, do you know what this yeah. is? No, I don't. <laughs> Razanon Drongobi. It was published in uh, 2006 by Simone Maganuko um, and colleagues. Uh, it's from Madagascar, it's from the Middle Jurassic, the Bathonian, and it's an archosaur known from like big bits of jaw uh, and like big stout teeth, indicating an animal with, okay, add a guess here, I think it's an animal with a skull of like going on for like, I don't know, 70 or 80 centimetres or more. It's a big, formidable archosaur. Middle Jurassic, Madagascar, definitely, de- definitely not a dinosaur. So people are like, what the hell is this thing? And it's terrestrial, okay? We're not talking about like a Thalatosuchian, uh, a sea croc type thing. Um, is this – surely you can't have – surely you can't have a big terrestrial non-dinosaurian archosaur in the middle Jurassic because dinosaurs ruled the world. There wasn't space for nothing else, right? <laughs> well, haha. Uh, additional uh, – I don't know if they've got additional material or if they've just like – on more in-depth analysis, but Dal Sasso and colleagues, similar set of authors involving some of the same people, just published this study, and they show that Razanondron Gobi 
is a crocodiliform and specifically is a Notosuchian. The Notosuchians, the mostly Gondwanan so-called mammal-toothed crocs, best known for uh, Cymosuchus from Madagascar and assorted South American forms, and there's various African forms and others that have got really interesting, sometimes multi-cusped complex teeth indicating unusual diets relative to what we expect for crocodilla morphs and crocodile forms specifically, and uh, indicating also complex chewing styles and stuff. Razanondron gobi seems to be a member of that group, but it's a big-ass, big, uh, macro-predatory one. And uh, I like it because, again, you know, the Mesozoic was not a dinosaurs-only theme park. There was space for other animals, even other terrestrial animals. So not suites of hundreds of species of giant macro-predatory crocodile forms, <laughs> but... Um, the same as in the modern world you know you you i've said this in various papers and articles that today yeah it's the age of mammals there's mammals everywhere it's the age of birds as well but there's still places where there's giant tortoises and where there's big lizards and where there's big terrestrial crabs or you know giant land snails whatever there's the world is just about big enough that there's always space for a few other animals if they're lucky so <laughs> yeah well less less and less so but um so how terrestrial is this thing then well, so far as we know, or we don't know, because we don't have like full skeletons and stuff, mm. but uh, so far as we know, it appears to be fully terrestrial. Certainly the form of the teeth are what you expect um, for a fully terrestrial, like a Ziphodont predator. Okay, bit of counter-argument there in that there are some uh, aquatic crocodile morphs. Uh, for those who don't know, I am deliberately using crocodile morphs and crocodile forms in separate because they're separate groups crocodile morphs is more inclusive um but this looks like a, a terrestrial thing and it also comes from uh, i believe it comes from a terrestrial unit uh, and of course marine animals never end up in terrestrial environments ever in the history of life <gasps> razanondron gobi sakalavi a gigantic mesu crocodilian from the middle dresk of madagascar is the oldest known notosuchian dalsasso piscini Fleury Maganuko. Cool. We move on? Yep. Right, real quick, amphibiany type things. So, a um, couple of papers uh, which have been known to people like me, and uh, they've been mentioned in the, the mentioned in, in, you know, alluded to in comments at uh, Tet Zoo uh, for a while, uh, involving Jason Pardo and colleagues and um basically a lot of really cool exciting work where they do high resolution ct scans of paleozoic um the, the stem tetrapod amphibian type things i mean oh, what do we call these animals in the textbook i'm doing i call them anamniates which just means non-amniate tetrapods they are the group of animals that conventionally people would call amphibians. And is that the right term for them? I don't know because some of them are nothing to do with living amphibians at all. Mm. Some of them are closer to, to amniotes. Um, so this huge set of tetrapods. Um, first paper, Jason Pardo, Brian Small, Adam Huttenlocker. They describe a new um, Triassic uh, temnospondyl, and you'll know temnospondyls well, called Chinley stegophis. And 
they say that it belongs to a specific group of temnospondyls called the stereospondyls, uh, which is a hugely successful mesozoic group. Uh, includes a lot of large-bodied aquatic temnospondyls, like your yeah, things like brachiopids and uh, oh god don't don't make me go off on a tangent i don't know what the tangent is because you just said amphibony type things as the subject i don't know where the topic is where are we going with this temnospondyl diversity if i start talking about the shape of the temnospondyl family tree and i start discussing stereospondyl diversity so what was that you illustrated a big temnospondyl what was that coolosuchus siderops siderops Ciderops. Okay, that is a stereospondyl. So imagine that as like a, in quotes, typical stereospondyl. They say Chinistegophis, which is pretty small. Its skull is, I don't know, like about about four centimeters long. They say it's a miniaturized Triassic stereospondyl, and it's got a bunch of characters that ally it with Cecilians the limbless, worm-like living amphibians. So they say that Sicilians are living stereospondyls. That's quite a big deal. But they, in in agreement with other workers, they say that the other living amphibian groups, so anurans, frogs and toads, and salamanders, they are not stereospondyls. They instead belong to another group of temnospondyls called dizerophoids, so it includes cacops and platyhystrix and blah, 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 terrestrial group. Um, this means that the, the, the three lineages of living amphibians come from totally disparate parts of the temnospondyl tree. They have distinct origins deep, deep, deep in the uh, Mesozoic. Uh, it actually makes a difference as to what we now call Lysamphibia, because if Lysamphibia is the Anurin plus Salamander plus Sicilian clade, Lysamphibia now has to capture <laughs> virtually all Temnospondyls, which is really bloody annoying. But um, um, so Chinley Stegophis, a stem Sicilian from the Triassic, uh, and it's uh, yeah, a stereospondyl-like stem Sicilian, as opposed to the other stem Sicilians we know so, of. Oh, this is it. I'm obviously pretty ignorant of this tree. So, were were te- temnospondyls were modern lysamphibians thought to be descended from temnospondyls? Are they meant to be part of the temnospondyl clade? There's competing. The... Yeah, go ahead. Well, there's competing views, radically competing views on where lysamphibians come from. But the most popular view is, yes, uh, lysamphibians descend from dyserophoid temnospondyls. So they are deeply nested within temnospondyls. And this study also says, yes, lysamphibians are temnospondyls, but it finds them to come from two totally distinct branches within because temnospondyle is an enormous group with hundreds and hundreds of species and hundreds of lineages. Um, uh, yeah, uh, and the 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 claim that Chinley Stegophis is a stem Sicilian has already been challenged. However, so uh, well, this not the, uh, right. Then the second paper is uh, by um, uh, J- led by Jason Pardo again. Matt Zostawicki. Yes, I, I really need to learn how to pronounce his surname. Per Alberg and Jason Anderson. Jason Anderson, even, and um, this they looked at uh, using high res CT scanning. They looked at the skull of an aestopod. Aestopods are these like long bodied, sort of eel like or snake like Paleozoic tetrapods, and they show they've got a bunch of characters that um, 
really weird brain case characters and palatal characters that that take them rootward in the tree to only one or two nodes above things like Acanthostega and Ichthyostega. So they say pretty much as soon as tetrapods sensu lato, pretty much as soon as tetrapods are first doing their first excursions on land and experimenting with limbs and digits, immediately they lost them and took to like limbless um, burrowing in leaf litter or whatever the hell it is that aestopods did. Taking aestopods that far down the tree has a whole bunch of knock-on effects for other animals that were previously thought to be allied to aestopods. They now have to go elsewhere in the tree. And there are other characters linking some of those other uh, stem tetrapods, alleged stem tetrapods, with other animals. And I've just covered this on Tetsu. One of the big surprising knock-on results of this is that microsaurs, another big complex group of amphibian type things they now no longer go they no longer they now go elsewhere on the tree and they don't go among amphibian type things at all they go up into amniots with a bunch of cranial characters linking them with reptiles putting them deeply nested within reptiles which is surprising because um for the last like five decades these animals have been considered to be close to nectridians you know diplocolus and anaestopods but now it's like what now they're close to now they're reptiles well that's been hinted at for a while because their teeth and jaws look really similar to those of some eu reptiles as opposed to parareptiles like captorinids so uh, it's also uh, in their name darren as we all know names get uh, names always you know they're always correct what goes around comes around. They were originally published as reptiles, and now they've gone back there. For now, because again, this is going to be contested also. Yeah. But um, for the full story, there, for those of you who love your uh, prehistoric amphibian type thing news um, and amniote news, there's there's a brand new article at Tet Zoo. You, we'd probably call them non amniote tetrapods, right? I mean, yeah, just going well, with the, yeah. like where we say non avian dinosaur and things like this. Well, that's what anamniate means. Yes. Anamniate means non, yes. non-amniate tetrapod. Uh, a lot of people say stem tets, stem tetrapods, but the problem is that, that that's ambiguous because that all depends on where you put the living tetrapod lineages. And if, if, if you have the living amphibians within temnospondyles or within that effect, oh God, it's just, it's very difficult to know what terms to use. Oh, God, I should sh- shut, shut up, Darren. That's enough. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> right, shut up, all... then. And let's talk yeah. about... Um, what do we got here? Um, dinosaurs in the wild. Let's talk about dinosaurs in the wild. Today is the 7th of July, year of our Lord, 2017, and Dinosaurs in the Wild opened on the 24th of June, I believe. Um, and, yeah, so it, it's go. This this project that I've been involved in for uh, well quite a few years, but it's really been you know uh, been coming together in the last two years. It's now live. It's at the NEC in Birmingham. It's there until some point in August. It then moves to Manchester, and it's there for a couple of months. And it goes somewhere else after that, but that hasn't been announced, so I can't say. If you want any information on it. Um, go to dinosaursinthewild.com. So this is an interactive 
exhibition experience. The idea is that we've invented time travel. A company called Chronotex has invented time travel, and they've set up time bases at various points in the past, and they're using them for the benefit of humanity, for the good, for good of the, for the good of us all. They're not in any way being naughty or making money out of it or slapping patents on DNA or whatever, mm. right? Or are they? Ah, wow. Yeah, um, well, and okay. uh, so, so you go into a. It's. I'm. I'm so pleased with it. Really happy with it. You, you go into a time machine and you go back to time base 67 in the Maastrichtian of Western North America, and um, you go through it. You're in a time machine. You uh, you're in a special vehicle. You drive through the Cretaceous landscape. So you're looking out through windows into the landscape. You may or may not see animals on your trip. Um, big clue. You actually do. And uh, you drive into like an underground compound and uh, there's like an underground base which is time base 67 and you're taken through the whole tour takes about an hour you're taken through like labs and autopsy rooms and live animal holding centers and um uh like uh visit visit special rooms for for visitors that kind of stuff and then you're taken finally to a um a, like a you, you you go down in lifts into this like you know um underground research base and um uh yeah there's like robots and all the sort of stuff you'd expect in a laboratory for people that study in late cretaceous life and then you're taken to a lookout center and you look out through giant windows you have to wear special glasses to protect yourself from the dangerous uv light of the time Uh and um you're looking at the landscape and you're looking at maastrichtian creatures and such animals as triceratops and some uh, Quetzalcoatlus and uh, Dromaeosaurs. Dakota Raptor is one of the main characters. And, um, yeah. And so far, feedback is really positive. People have really, you know, there's 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 going to be like a few things that are that, that are nitpicky. Now, I have heard a few nitpicks, but, you know, they're all things you've got to expect. Um, and, um, and there's a range of merchandise. And I quite like... <laughs> So this is the actual look of the Tyrannosaurus. Yeah. And uh, look, look at its feet. Look, look, accurate pads on its feet. It's yeah. uh, it's, really, it's really quite good. Yeah. Um, so far they do this and a Dakota Raptor. I'm not sure which others they're doing. The tail was so skinny for... This was the cause of a lot of discussion on Twitter and Facebook yesterday. See, there's this joint in the tail. Yeah. Oh, I Because if, if they had the tail as it was meant to be as it actually is in the, the CG render, it would be fat and with a really dangerous point that a child could like deliberately could poke their eye out with. So that's why they have this soft curve, which <laughs> meant they, they had to change this whole bit, which sort of, I wouldn't say that ruins it, but it means it looks different from how it's meant to. Um, that's a pretty small nitpick. I, I know, but I it's wouldn't like, pick that like, as being particularly wrong. Well, well you know what it? people are like. Yeah, people... Goddamn people on the internet whinging about the tail. Um, so yeah, dinosaurs in the wild. I'm really happy with it, and um, I, I, I am the. There's only one the scientific advisor. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I get touted as a. Well, I get like you know, I have to sort of take people around it and talk to TV people and um, get wheeled out as a prize. Mm-hmm. Like you can go around with our paleontologist. <laughs> So, I guess that's enough about that. Yeah. When's the big opening with the champagne that I'm going to drink? Oh, that's happened. Did you not get the invite? 
we had the we had the um the vip event was like two days ago so tony and i went and stayed in birmingham for that and then before that was the press and celebrity event you were in austin at the time though nice nice so, actually i wouldn't have yeah gone. i was i wouldn't have gone to birmingham anyway <laughs> i was it only cost 86 pounds on the train jesus um i hate virgin trains so much virgin trains are the worst worst train network in the uk <laughs> okay thanks for that little uh <laughs> aside um Relevant. yeah it was cele- celebrities it was all it was all reality tv stars which weird. my days of watching reality tv are long behind me yeah i only watch two or three of them now <laughs> <laughs> right evolution in minutes oh yeah so uh so my main task at the moment is to finish the textbook, but unfortunately I have to do other things to earn money. And um, I've just finished a book called Evolution in Minutes, which has been published in November. And it's kind of a guide to it's like, sort of like 300 separate entries on everything evolution themed. So everything from the historical ideas about evolution, about you know, people before Darwin and what Darwin thought and Darwin's experiments to the discovery of fossils and lots of stuff on, you know, molecular phylogenetics and DNA and Crick and Watson and all that kind of stuff. And then the, the, everything on the fossil record and then all the stuff about like the socio-political um, factors relevant to arguments about evolution and social policy and racial purity and all those kinds of all that kind of thing is is all is all in there so it's kind of everything so um i particularly like doing the genetic stuff that was great well that's base pairs and nucleotides i love that stuff that's all all real cool stuff (laughs) it's it's really great and now find a picture for it (laughs) this is the molecular structure of dna oh well i can see why everyone finds it so interesting (laughs) sorry used to be fish Um, now it's dna because now you like fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, is that out, did you say? It's published in November. Okay. We shouldn't be talking yeah. about it now. We should be talking about it in November. What are you doing? It's just people a can, teaser. Yeah, pre-order it. Go and pre-order it. Oh, they can pre-order like, it. The people that like my books, and there's at least a few of them. So, it's out pre-order, um, is it? I'm pretty sure it is, yeah. <laughs> pretty sure. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, if it's not, it's not. But if it is, then it is. All right, But that's like that's like one or two books a year I've been publishing lately. That's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Just call me, call me Don Prothero. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. If that's all the same with you. <laughs> right. Should we do some cash for questions? Because we've still got like a billion of them. Right. Yeah. Okay. This one's from Robin Hewson, and she or he actually, Robin's ambiguous. Z. Is it Robin with a Y? No, I. So, Z asks... Give me the number, please. It's pretty simple. Where do domestic dogs come from? The number question. I can't... 41. I don't know why you can't scroll. It's something like... There's something wrong with you. Okay, so when I scroll, it jumps up to the top. So I'm now back at questions one, two, three, four, five, and so on. Thanks a bunch, Google Docs. So now I have to use it's the little navigation. Computer. Everyone else's computer works. 
Google Docs. It just and and if I oh, if I try and like, what is it even doing? It's jumping all over the place. You're gonna have to hand me. Your uh, it's laptop. done it again. It's gone up to the top. You're God gonna have sake. to hand me your laptop in Google Docs. I've got to figure out what's going on here. My laptop will fall apart if you touch it. <laughs> it's That's on true. its legs. <laughs> Um, yes. So, where do domestic dogs come from? Uh, Darren talked about the controversial origins of domestic dogs in a Tetsu article, but elaborate. Yeah. Yeah, my, um, thank you, Robin. Uh, yeah, um, so that, this, this, there's this alternative, where do I start on this? So, that 2006 article is about the claim that Canis familiaris, does not is not deeply nested within Canis lupus the wolf, but instead uh, they both the, the wolf and the domestic dog come from a common ancestor that lived I don't know like a million years ago or so, and the Canis familiaris is its own lineage and uh, existed as a wild animal before it self domesticated itself, around about hundred thousand years ago. Self domesticated itself. Before it underwent self-domestication. Do you know what self-domestication is, though? Well, it starts hanging around people for exactly. advantages, right? That exactly. Gets, what, yeah. what, what, right. what else could it possibly mean? <laughs> Why were you confused by what I said then? Because you said self-domesticated <laughs> itself. You could have just said it's self-domesticated. Okay. Yeah. So this hypothesis, that um, this model, that um, it... Um, yeah, underwent self-domestication, relies on the idea that there's a bunch of fossil dogs that are stem members of familiaris, and it also um, leans quite heavily on the idea that the New Guinea singing dog is potentially important and that there are wild populations and that animals like that are ancestral to domestic familiaris. So... It, that's kind of, that's the idea that I discussed in that 2006 article, and I kind of promoted it and sort of thought it might be right. And uh, it is endorsed by a few workers, but it is very much a minority, indeed, fringe opinion. And uh, it is substantially outweighed by a far better case, which does not support any of that and does find Canis familiaris to be nested within Canis lupus and to have originated domestic dogs um, originated at different times from different populations of Canis lupus in different parts of the world with there then being a whole there's a complex term for this I'm not going to use a swear word in it but an intricate web mess thing with loads of hybridization loads of horizontal dream gene transfer happening all over the place so people hybridize different domestic dogs from all over the place um the species familiaris if you want to have it as a species is like it incorporates wolf genes from numerous different wolf populations possibly from different species or subspecies of wolf if you even endorse the view that the that Canis lupus is a species complex instead of just one, which you know, some workers do. And, um, yeah, I've changed my mind. I, I don't think the, the idea of self-domestication is at all correct. And I don't think the idea of um, a separate origin from outside of lupus is correct either. I do think that, that familiaris is nested within lupus. It's a subset of, uh, of 
the wolf. And I wrote an article correcting this. I wrote a te- there's a Tetrapod Zoology article from like maybe two years ago called Things I've Gotten Wrong. Uh, and I do specifically address that. Um, I was heavily criticised after writing the 2006 article by some noted workers on mm-hmm. uh, d- dog and wolf genetics. And they said, well, that's really interesting because it totally contradicts all of my <laughs> research, none of which you cited or credited. Uh, and What and do you my- expect? You work in genetics. <laughs> <laughs> There's Find a, there's something a whole... interesting and maybe I'll cite you. Oh, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many studies have been done on um, uh, domestic dog uh, uh, genetics and how they compare to, um, yeah, wolf diversity. Mm-hmm. That um, So many. And they the, when I, my thinking here is that um, when multiple different researchers multiple different labs get the same result then there probably is a signal there <laughs> so and, and that's exactly what they've got yeah. probably yeah so so the article's called so please robin if you google some of the things i've gotten wrong and then my name you'll be taken to this thanks scientific american for not putting a date on an article which is really handy i don't so i don't know when it was published um there's a whole bunch of stuff. There's stuff about like stuff. Some of the things I've said in the past about Sasquatch, about orangutans, the controversial origins of the domestic dog. I'm going to read this. It won't take too long. Anyone who knows anything about animals is familiar with the idea that the domestic dog is a subset of the wolf or a messy series of domesticated hybridized wolf populations that perhaps represent a few different domestication events. Whatever. A huge amount of work supporting this model has been published. But shock horror, there are other models out there. An idea that's been around for a long time and has never really gone away is that C. familiaris is not part of the wolf clade. The domestic dog instead representing the direct descendant of a wild, coyote-sized canid that has existed as a distinct population ever since it diverged from the common ancestor that also gave rise to other canis species. This model points to weaknesses with the dogs are wolves hypothesis, draws attention to the superficial similarity present between dingoes, New Guinea singing dogs and the pariah dogs of tropical Asia and argues that dogs more or less domesticated themselves, in quotes, by moving in at the fringes of settlements. I really got into this after reading Janice Kolomatznik's several articles on the subject and wrote a fairly strong Dogs Are Not Wolves article at Tet Zoo version 1. Some people were unhappy with what I said and they told me so. And yeah, they included some big names in the world of dog and wolf studies. Discussing this issue in full and refusing everything I said in that 2006 article would require a lengthy article all its own and that ain't going to happen today. So all I'll say now is that the Dogs Are Not Wolves model is not viable in view of the mountains of molecular work now done on dogs, wolves and other canids. And then I cite one, two, three, four, five, six studies published between 2002 and 2014. Seriously, it's dead. Dogs really are deeply nested within wolves. And the idea that dogs self-domesticated in the manner that domestic cats probably did. Ooh, very topical. Um, does not, because there's a brand new paper just appeared like a week ago on cat cat domestication does not explain the incredible and tight co-evolution present between our species and see familiaris so i still haven't done the proper full length thing that i should at some point mm-hmm. and one day i will yeah well that's disappointing isn't it there you go standard story pretty much correct oh well <laughs> thanks science <How> boring. <laughs> <laughs> but i do i do still know some people that yeah are quite vocal supporters of this dogs are not wolves model and they say you shouldn't have given up on it because uh, 
Yeah. But yeah, no. But it I, sounds I, like it's not all that controversial then, maybe. Well, I suppose there are still people arguing, but yeah. Well, it's kind of like birds are not dinosaurs. It's yeah. like, yeah, there's a few vocal fringe people, but the vast amount of data and the uh, the the basically, you, without being rude or mean, this <laughs> does sound rude and mean, but the people that sound like they're the ones you should trust, that don't have an axe to grind, you know, they're clearly experienced and like working in highfalutin labs that bringing lots of money, and they've got a track record of publishing good science on diverse subjects, not just on this one issue. Uh, they do support this mainstream thing. Yeah. Whereas the ones, the ones who don't support the mainstream thing are, you know, kind of people at the fringes that specialize on weirdy things and uh, again without wanting to sound mean or rude even though i just did okay let's move on yeah let's move on okay so this one's from marie boots boots why do cats meow or trill when watching or stalking prey do only house cats do this or do wild cats do it too jenny really wants to know the answer to this as well well uh thanks for the question marie long time listener to the show um we've covered this before so your memory is maybe as bad as Marie's. No offence, then. <laughs> um, well, Marie might not have listened to every episode. She might not listen. Not compulsory. <laughs> well, you say that. Um, <laughs> we we definitely covered this in a previous uh, episode, and I forget why. Uh, why do they do it? Um, well, there was a study of one of the South American small cats, Margate or Ocelot or Jeffrey's cat. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten which one, mm-hmm. and. Um, this paper described how this cat made little trilling or bird-like cheeping noises and marmosets or tamarins, can't remember what species, but, you know, some small monkey, they heard the noise, they thought it was one of them and came to investigate it and bam, trap, <laughs> it's a trap, yeah. it was a cat. And that's how the cat catches the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> chirpy chirpy catchy monkey <laughs> chirpy chirpy catchy monkey <laughs> and um so when this and this paper you know it it did it wasn't just like an anecdotal i was walking through the jungle and i heard a bird i heard a bird and it was a cat they they so far as i remember you know they they did it properly they uh, sort of ran various ways of testing it and everything to use all the you know to go into the science in great detail and um on the back of that people have said well when other small cats, domestic cats, it's quite common for people to say they watch their cat watching a bird or a squirrel or whatever, and the cat is going, or some other weird noise. My, my mother's, one of my mother's cats used to do it. Um, it may well be uh, deliberate, deliberate mimicry, or if not mimicry, some noise that invokes curiosity on the part of a potential prey animal. So, yeah, uh, so with specific reference to marie's question why the cats meow or trill it may well be uh deliberate mimicry or an uh, a stirring up of interest what's the right way of saying that you know uh, a way of inciting interest and it's not only house cats do this but wild cat yes at least some wild cats do it too Margay makes squeak noises to attract monkeys. Let's see. <laughs> squeak noises. Squeaky, squeaky, catchy monkeys. <clears throat> okay, so yeah, amazingly that did. 
bring it up. <laughs> it's Mar- okay, so it's Margay. The, um, the study was published in 2010. Yep. Wild cat mimics monkey sounds to capture prey. Says Live Science, that most reputable of sources. The study was blah 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 blah. God, I don't want to read out this whole thing, but um, yeah. So so Margay is the um, yeah the specific uh, species that this has been documented in, and there are anecdotal accounts of people talking about jaguars and pumas mimicking primates, rodents, and other animals in order to lure them into striking range. This article says. Um, one other thing worth mentioning is that uh, people have suggested, possibly even argued, I can't remember, but it has, it has been proposed. <laughs> Hypothesized? Theorized. Yeah. Domestic cat sounds um, have co-evolved with us such that domestic cats sound like human babies. That's been oh, proposed. Yes. And that's to lure you in so they can jump on your face. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, cute little baby. Oh, no, it's a cat. I've made a mistake. No, it's so that we um, like them more, I guess. <laughs> See, both our cats do this when they're watching birds. And they're quite loud. And it doesn't sound anything like the birds. Or a monkey. It sounds like a cat. <laughs> it's do they know that the cat is... sort of sound, but it's definitely a cat sort of sound. Yeah. Do they know that the bird can see them? Well, the bird would have to be pretty pretty blind not to see them. They're not hiding very well. Because maybe that's the thing. Maybe if they're, like, sat out in the open... And they do it at and... big birds, right? Big birds they might not take on. Yeah. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's the point. Maybe they're saying, hey, don't mind me. I'm friendly. Look, I'm perfectly... Because you, know you know how there's this thing where if a predator is like, you know, skulking and clearly hunting, a potential prey animal will see it and go, oh my God, you're hunting. But another time if the cat is like brazenly, you know, with its tail up in the air going, la la la, don't mind me, I'm just, they'll like ignore it. So could it could it be that there's actually some, I don't know, Machiavellianism evolved and, they've, and it's a double bluff thing where, ha ha, don't mind me, yeah. I'm not hunting. Ah, Bored you. <laughs> so yeah. It's false advertising. Maybe, Maybe. that's... But I've but noticed maybe. they do it at squirrels and, like, pigeons and crows and magpies, but they don't do it at small birds. Mm. We should also it seems say that of, way. I don't know. Yeah. Your cats are super, super weird, though, aren't they? Both so, of them. They're so. both very strange cats, yes. Yeah. yeah. Personality disorders. Um. Okay, so yeah, so but I mean, uh, yeah, that doesn't really mean anything, and also, yeah, obviously, yeah, wildcats do it seems to be like mimicry. Sure, I can buy that, and that domestic cats do it, and they're not very good at it, maybe, and they don't know when to do it because they're idiots. A lot of a lot of what domestic cats do is just time wasting anyway. It's just mucking around. Oh, what am I going to do today? Oh, meow. <laughs> food, there's food there in the bowl. If I go and sit on that person's face, they'll give me some food anyway. Oh God, I mean, yeah. okay, such wasters. Yeah. <laughs> such wasters. <laughs> okay, uh, let's do another cash for question. Uh, another one from Donald Esker. The earliest tortoises show regular up. On the show. What? Regular on the show. Regular on the show. Um, 
Because people listening to these, they might space them out a little bit more. They won't realise that this is like, what, third question we've answered from Donald Esker? Sorry, Donald, exactly. for taking so long to get to your questions. The earliest orders show up no later than the end of the Danian... Danian? Is that how you say it? Danian? Yeah, that's how Danian? I say it. Danian. In China. Were they taking up niche space from recently extinct small herbivorous dinosaurs? Do you have an opinion on this? I don't know whether Danian is, because I don't know oh, the it's... stages. Only the, well, only the Spankian. Well, uh, the Spankian to Arsian. Uh, Danian, Thanetian, Impression, Natusian, Bartonian, Pridonian, Repellian, Chetian, Octanian, Berdigalian, Langian, Cerevelian, Tortonian, Mycenaean, Zagnian, Placensian, Griselian, Pleistocene, Holocene. Uh, so it's the first stage of the Paleocene, so it's right after the KT. Can you oh. give me the number again? Because yet again, it's jumping all over the place. I've lost it. 133. Um, the brief answer uh, is um, no. Tortoises were not taking up niche space from recently seeing small herbivorous dinosaurs because because um, I reckon that <laughs> tortoise type... You hypothesize. Yeah, I reckon that tort- tortoise type herbivorous testudines can't call them Chelonians no more um, uh, were already doing the sort of thing that true tortoises do in the neogene so there's a a number of um, Cretaceous testudines many belonging to the group called the Bainids uh, completely extinct uh, tortoise like group which uh, look to me to be um, omnivores like a lot of the sort of nondescript uh, tortoises like um, Manuria and um, uh, box, uh, box turtles Terrapini and, and one okay that's an Emmy did but it's a tortoise like Emmy did so so what I'm getting at here is that why is that why is that funny? Would you like to explain? You're, you're wondering. You're wondering. What are you getting at? Get 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 to what you're getting. What at. what I'm getting at is that the thing that tortoises do. Yeah. Your average tortoise. Okay, so tortoises don't go thinking about weirdy things like pancake tortoises and giant island dwelling tortoises. Those are those are neogene novelties. Your tortoises start out as mid-sized things, carapace length, like 20 to 30 centimetre, mm-hmm. um, terrestrial omnivores. Yeah, they eat herbs and low-growing foliage, but they're also eating lots of snails. They're eating carcasses and you know, they're eating arthropods and stuff. Um, I think that that lifestyle was already present in a bunch of Cretaceous non because te- tortoises specifically are testudinids they're a specific group of um uh, cryptodires i think there were other groups of cryptodires other groups of uh, cryptodire testudines that were doing the same thing in the cretaceous already mm-hmm. so in other words i don't think there's like the it's a, the tortoise thing only becomes a thing after dinosaurs non-bird dinosaurs are gone i think that the Testudinid type, tested <laughs> tortoise like, tortoise like, test tortoise like testudines were already a thing in the Cretaceous. Tortoise like tri- turtley things. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And this is this is confused by the fact that because I when it comes to talking about the whole of this group, the whole of testudines, you can't. I agree with a, a whole bunch of turtle experts in that I don't think you should call the whole group Chelonia because Chelonia is already in use as a generic name for one specific turtle, the green sea turtle, Chelonia. Um, so there's this trend to call them testudines or testudines. And then, uh, did you, did you know that turtle and, and also the, the English names are so stupid as well, because when talking about the whole group, I often find it's easiest to pretend you're an American, something I ordinarily would never do. And, um, <laughs> a USian and, um, refer to all members of the group as turtles yeah right because because there's this idea that british in british english turtles are only sea turtles amphibious ones are terrapins and terrestrial ones are tortoises Mm. but it's like no it's easier to just refer to the whole group as turtles and then because there's a whole load of animals that are sort of ambiguous in that scheme like what a what a pluridized what a soft what a side-necked turtles for example are they they're not terrapins they're not tortoises they ain't sea turtles we don't have a name for them so um yeah no i agree i think the american seems better just for casual conversation so i, I don't have any problems better. yeah a, a tortoise is a kind of turtle is not yeah. like offensive to me yeah um yeah i think that's better i think it's actually in, sort of vaguely informative as well right it's obvious but yeah um so your answer is no there i just accidentally deleted that question zero you said where's the money there's no money in there yeah i forgot to fill it in (laughs) that's because i had to fill in like 20 of them just before the show okay um yeah so no is the answer probably but also like a lot of these things i mean What's a niche? I'm, I'm not really... Yeah. Uh, uh, the more I think about this stuff, the more I think... It doesn't really make any sense. Especially once you're talking about a whole swathe of things going extinct and a complete turnover of the ecosystem. It's not like there's a bunch of fixed niches that things take up, right? Mm. A niche yeah, is, is a whole... Is a, is a role in an ecosystem. If the whole ecosystem's been disrupted, it doesn't make any sense to talk about the niches anymore. There's, It's a free-for-all after that, right? Um, so, I think in that way, it's sort of unanswerable. Well, yes and no. I mean, there's still... Okay, there's, like, after the KPG event, there's yeah. going to be... There's, there's plants growing close to the ground, and there's a whole bunch of invertebrates and bits of carrion the things to eat. So, what's going to eat that? That's your... That's what we. It's, it's, a, it's a tremendously vague concept, the niche. And so what? I don't. I don't find it a problem that it's a vague concept. It's like there's a space, as you've just said, there's a space in an ecosystem that organisms can occupy. But it's not like a rigidly defined thing. Like you know, it has to be this size and this shape, and it has to only feed on this resource. Um, and uh, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a group of animals that, yeah. So tortoises, herbivorous. Turtles, herbivorous testudines, probably are overlapping in what they're eating with, like you know, uh, omnivorous and herbivorous lizards, and omnivorous and herbivorous little dinosaurs, including um, birds, and also overlapping with mammals, 
Yeah. Um, so there's yeah there's there's enough room in some parts of the world for uh, that to not be a problem. Yeah, I think the concept of a niche becomes somewhat um, more defined when you've got an ecosystem, though, right? So you can point to an animal and say, it's doing that thing. And if you mm. took it out, something else would come in. and Well, the, there would be nothing doing that thing, I guess, or something like this. I don't know. Mm. But when you've got, yeah, I mean, especially when things are relatively broad, you know, they're kind of omnivorous. Yeah, and there's lots of animals doing that sort of thing. They're competing sort of vaguely with dozens and dozens of different sorts of things with va- different, radically different body types. Yeah. yeah it's just so, it's like it's not, yeah, it's not yeah. a useful way to think about it. I, I, I also, like, I, there could be the impression from Donald's um, uh, question, uh, don't, don't, mean this, don't mean this sound any way negative at all, but there could be the impression from that question that that it's only the release of that niche that allowed tortoises to evolve that could that could be what you could take away from that question whereas um yeah in this particular case i because there is some evidence that that is the case you know there's like for example mammals exploding in diversity after the extinction of dinosaurs you could say they were constrained uh or limited by terrestrial dinosaur lineages In, in this particular case i think it's more to do with the tempo of the evolution of the specific lineages that lineage that tortoises belong to they belong to a group that hadn't been hanging around for tens of millions of years doing nothing waiting for a luckiest lucky break that they it just so happens that the lineages around tortoises were um you know evolving and diversifying uh, towards the late cretaceous mm-hmm. uh, so yeah so uh, yeah also it's worth keeping in memory in mind that dinosaurs aren't the only thing that went extinct you know, there was lots of. I mean, this is going against what you're saying, and I, I, yeah, that's fine. But yeah, so there were other, other competing animals that went extinct at the same time, including other turtle groups. Yeah, yeah including other turtle groups, exactly. <laughs> including, including banids. I think uh, do banids persist beyond the end of the Cretaceous? I can't remember if they persist into the Paleogene, because um, it could be that their extinction is actually the catalyst for the diversification of tortoises which completely goes against what i just said but um uh oh no they're in no forget no forget that they're in the paleocene and eocene okay i ain't no turtle specialist mm-hmm. but you got that big book yeah which isn't about turtles and is <laughs> and is and is only about the hopeful monster concept and the origins of turtles it's not about cenozoic late mesozoic and cenozoic evolution of turtles there's 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 like two good books on fossil turtles. Um, I seem to, I think I've got both of them as PDFs. One of them is like the Gaffney Symposium volume. And why have I forgotten the other one? There's definitely another one. But as is the, oh, Ron Orenstein's book, Survivors in Armour. That's quite a nice book on turtles. Um, but yeah, prohibitively expensive. This really bugs me about anything that's good. It's just like, it's so expensive. It's like, no, that knowledge ain't for you because you can't afford it. I'm planning to talk at a conference this year about attempts to review the vertebrate fossil record, obviously with reference to 
ongoing work on my own. I don't. It's a bit of a weird thing. So I'm not sure if I'll, you know, make it through review. We can, but try. And um, I don't know whether to make a point of this or not. It's like a lot of the info. If you want a good review, like the if you want to know about the geological, you know, the evolutionary history of a group of animals, whatever, whatever it is. It's like so often the works that do that are unless you're going to like get them illegally through thievery or illegal sharing of PDFs, you have to find huge sums of money, like over a hundred pounds, over a hundred and fifty dollars. Um, and don't say we well, just get on interlibrary loan because did you know that if you get a lot of stuff on interlibrary loan, if it's valuable, you're often not allowed to take it away. You're not allowed to photocopy it. Sometimes they won't even let you look at it. Because like, nah, it's too valuable. We know you're trying to photocopy it and snap the spine. I've had that happen. So, so these books, Handbook of Paleoherpetology, bane of my life. These books, because these are meant to be the these are meant to be the gold standard for this. You know, if you want to learn, if you want to know everything there is about, for example, ichthyosaurs, like that volume. Well, don't worry, they did a handbook on it. Yeah, they did a handbook that costs over a hundred pounds, and is. Mm, yeah, I mean, obviously it's a problem. And it's not like the authors are making any money out of it either. So, well, not serious amounts of money. So, I mean, the the like the books, yeah, they're slightly different, aren't they? The big books, I don't know. Some are, like some they say, well, it costs a lot of money to print them. So they have to be really expensive. And they say that they can be really expensive because we know the only people that buy them are like, you know, rich people in charge of labs or libraries, which have got, you know, infinite money to to <laughs> throw, away, throw around. Apparently, um, uh, individual yeah. researchers will never want them. Yeah. And they'll never sell a lot. They'll only sell like five copies. So that's why they're so expensive. Yes, this is a terrible way of doing science, obviously, right? That just wrapping things up in inaccessible places yeah. is is just a bad way of doing it and it's very unfortunate that a lot of the overviews right the like uh what you might want if you're not a specialist mm. is precise are precisely these things that's a exactly. real shame yeah so i'm gonna wear my socialist worker t-shirt yeah uh, hold my green shield stamp books <laughs> my co-op <laughs> shopping bag <laughs> my Jeremy Corbyn cap <laughs> I'm kidding I'm not a Corbynite um, nationalise the publishing industry yeah <laughs> what do we want a nationalised public library system with cheap reviews now when do we want zoology, it all of it <laughs> when do we want it after peer review what is, it? is that is that the simpsons episode is some 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 parody of like yeah. <laughs> what do we want a fair and system organized <laughs> when do we want it after an appropriate amount of peer review and pre-testing and trials <laughs> okay. we've been talking for a long time now yeah, God. Okay, I think we can finish this one. This one is going to be about an hour long, so... <laughs> Done. Let's wrap it up. All right. Um, I tweet at... <laughs> Luke, you must complete the training. <laughs> I can't get the vision out of my head. Of my friends, I've got to help them. You must not go. 
<laughs> but Han and Leia will die if I don't. You don't know that. <laughs> Tet Zoo. I blog at Tet Zoology, currently hosted Scientific American. You should play um, Alec Guinness more often. You're very good at it. <laughs> I'll do more Alec Guinness lines next time. <laughs> Alec Guinness, he was, he was great. He was a fantastic man. Genuine class. Jeremus Iron.